This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review podcasts. We are on day four out of five of our week of infectious disease. Daphna, how's it going? Yesterday was a toughie. Yesterday was yeah, a tough one. Yeah, it was long. One. It was long. <laughs> so thanks for everybody for bearing with us. Let's jump right into RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, it is the most common respiratory infection in infants. It is extremely contagious, as we all know. It's most common in the winter months, though in Florida, it's always RSV season. It's always, yeah. uh, It's always RSV season. Almost all children are infected by two to three years of age. What are its characteristics? Um, it is an RNA paramyxovirus, paramyxovirus. Um, it comes in two strains, strain A and strain B, and strain A is more common. It is transmitted through direct contact with secretions, uh, which are highly contagious. It can also be um, transmitted uh, through droplets. So the virus can survive for hours in droplets on countertops, survives about a half an hour on the skin. It's not transmitted to the fetus, thankfully, in in pregnant people because uh, it's not felt to have any viremia. So the risk factors are being less than one to two years of age, certainly being preterm, less than 32 weeks gestation. This is a 10 time greater chance of hospitalization, even without history of bronchopulmonary dysplasia or BPD. You're even higher risk if you're a preterm infant with BPD. You're at risk if you're an infant with congenital heart disease, in particular the cyanotic heart diseases, moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension, congestive heart, weight, congestive heart failure, uh, if you have upper airway abnormalities or neuromuscular disease. You have a higher risk if you have frequent exposure to infants or young toddlers, particularly uh, siblings uh, or daycare contacts. Um, interestingly, passive exposure to tobacco smoke has not been consistently associated with an increased risk of hospitalization for RSV. So clinical pictures, um, it presents like an upper respiratory infection in most cases, um, but there can be pneumonia, bronchiolitis. In the initial phases, we can often see apnea, in particular in the premature infant, otitis media, low-grade fever, cough, and hypoxemia. Most infants improve in three to four days, but the hypoxemia may persist for weeks. Some kind of characteristic checks to x-ray finding are bilateral interstitial pneumonitis, hyperinflation, but only about 20% have lobar consolidations. Long-term, they may develop recurrent wheezing, and some even with abnormal pulmonary function testing later in life. The the diagnosis is through immunofluorescent and enzyme immunoassays, which detect viral antigen in the nasopharyngeal secretions. It can also be accomplished through culture. Uh, Viral detection from nasopharyngeal secretions in cell culture requires one to five days. Um, This can be decreased to one to two days using um, shell vial techniques. There is a PCR available, but not widely available, though it does have increased sensitivity compared to the other 
um, tests. But the most important thing we can do is prevention. So we are preventing RSV through Synergis or palivizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody. And it's indicated for the highest risk groups that we already spoke about. So it's indicated for, number one, infants born less than 29 weeks gestation. Number two, uh, infants with chronic lung disease of prematurity, so oxygen need for greater than 28 days after birth, if the birth gestation is less than 32 weeks. Um, both of uh, these groups would get a maximum of five monthly doses during the first RSV season. Now, for these babies with chronic lung disease of prematurity, additional doses may be indicated during the second year after birth if the infant requires chronic steroid therapy, diuretics, or oxygen during the six months prior to the RSV season. So they may get doses in the second season. The third group, infants with a hemodynamically significant structural heart disease with acyanotic heart disease and treated for congestive heart failure with future plan for surgical repair. These infants get a maximum of five monthly doses during the first RSV season. Fourth group, infants with moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension, a maximum of five monthly doses during the first RSV season. Five, infants with cyanotic heart disease, there's actually an unknown benefit uh, of synergists, so really dependent on the cardiology team. Six, Consider synergists in infants with neuromuscular disorder or congenital anomaly that impacts the ability to clear upper airway secretions due to ineffective cough. Synergist is not currently indicated for infants with hemodynamically insignificant ASD, small VSD, pulmonary valve stenosis, mild coarctation, or PDA. Uh, it's also not currently indicated for infants with myocardiomyopathy or infant status post-surgery with correction of underlying heart defect. But of note, the synergist changes uh, happen regularly, so you should review them right before the exam. Mm -hmm. Synergist has been shown uh, to decrease the risk of hospitalization by 55% and decrease the number of hospital days, but is not effective for treatment once an infant has RSV. Other preventative measures include good hand washing, limiting exposure to tobacco smoke, and limiting exposure to crowds. There are some therapies, um, some of the antivirals like ribavirin, the effectiveness of which is controversial. Um, supportive care includes hydration, oxygen, CPAP, intubation if necessary. Some uh, controversy regarding nebulized hypertonic saline, um, heliox, bronchodilators, and systemic steroids have not been proven to be beneficial. Infection control, standard precautions, and contact precautions, and you could potentially cluster infants uh, or children um, if they all have RSV. Okay. Okay. So the next, uh, the next, uh, the next one for us is hepatitis B. Um, hepatitis B is something that we deal with often, especially um, in and around the delivery room. The incidence of hepatitis B in the U.S. is about 0.5 to 1% of pregnant women um, that are hepatitis B surface antigen positive. It is a double-stranded DNA. And the transmission of hepatitis B comes from infected blood or bloody secretions. The group that is at greatest risk includes IV drug users, uh, person with multiple sexual partners, and uh, healthcare workers, and 
people from uh, Alaskan Eskimos origins. There's uh, an increased prevalence in uh, delivery population in Japan, China, and Taiwan. Hepatitis B, surface antigen positive, asymptomatic pregnant women risk of transmission increases from 10% to 85% if that mother is also hepatitis B E antigen um, because of a high degree of replication. I forget what the E stands for, hepatitis B E antigen, eh, whatever. Um, the, the greatest risk of transmission is at birth because of exposure to contaminated genital tract, secretions, and or blood, followed by the postpartum period, followed by the trans, a transplacental transmission during the third trimester, followed by a transplacental transmission during the first or second trimester, which is the rarest form of transmission. Hepatitis B does cross into the breast milk, but there's very little risk of transmission. So now, how do you make the diagnosis? And that, that could be quite tricky. So there are different um, forms of antigens that we can test in the blood, right? And I think these are very helpful to try to get a sense of where you are in terms of your infection. And so um, the hepatitis B uh, C antigen, right, is not uh, present in high amounts to be clinically useful, right? Um, now, the hepatitis B surface antigen, which is the one that we're most familiar with, is interesting because it is the first marker to appear in acute infection. It is present one to three months after exposure, so they're still at window period of between the, the first uh, three months where really you could be all negative. And typically, it's it's positive. The hepatitis B surface antigen is positive before the onset of symptoms and is cleared one to two weeks after jaundice occurs. And so if you look on the graph of all these titers, right, hepatitis B surface antigen really starts spiking around three months. It peaks at around like 10 weeks post-exposure and then goes downhill from there to uh, a zero level at about 24 weeks post-exposure. Hepatitis B E antigen is detectable when the hepatitis B virus is rapidly replicating. I think this is the part where a person is most infectious. The antigen initially is present uh, prior to clinical symptoms and disappears before clinical symptoms resolve. And, um, um, and it's always um, detected with hepatitis B surface antigen. I was getting confused there for a second. Then you can look for antibodies, right? So you can look for anti-HEP-BE antigens, which uh, are people who are infected, but still uh, now at a low risk of transmission. You could have anti-hepatitis B-C antigen, IgM initially, specifically for acute infections, followed by IgG. And this, is, uh, this can be detected in the uh, window period between hepatitis B surface antigen and anti-hepatitis B surface antigen can be detected in the acute, resolved, or chronic infection. Finally, we have anti-hepatitis B surface antigen. Uh, these antibodies are the ones that protect against future reinfection, and they indicate immunity. So, um, yeah. So now, what are some of the of the laboratory findings that are associated with acute hepatitis B infection, and then progression? to chronic infection. So um, 
within uh, the first few weeks post-exposure, we will see hepatitis B surface antigen. Those will remain high. Um, and then we will see uh, an initial spike of IgM anti-hepatitis BC, which will eventually go down after post-exposure week 35, 36. Uh, and we will see a uh, continuous rise in the level of ant ant total anti-hepatitis BC that will stay high after about 12 weeks post-exposure. So now this is all very confusing. So let's just try to walk through a few cases and maybe those can serve as our questions for today, Daphna, what do you think? I think that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So they, let's... this is very high yield. So yeah, I agree. agree. So, okay, so let's say we have a uh, mother that hepatitis B surface antigen is negative, um, anti-hepatitis B C is negative, anti-hepatitis B S is negative, and the IgM for anti-hepatitis B C um, is non-applicable because everything's negative. The maternal diagnosis there is that this is a mother that's susceptible for hepatitis, but no, no infection, right? Okay, now, I'm, now you're gonna help me answer these ones. What if hepatitis B surface antigen is negative, anti-hepatitis B uh, C is negative, but the anti-hepatitis B surface ant uh, antibody is positive? So anti-hepatitis B S is positive. What, what are we dealing with here? Sorry. You said happy surface antigen is positive. No, is negative. Oh, no. it's negative. Hep okay. The hepatitis B surface antigen is negative. Negative. The anti-hep BC is mm -hmm. negative, but the anti-hep BS is positive. So the, yeah. So that so means that, that you have- So that means, mm -hmm. yeah, you, that you were vaccinated. So you are uh, immune as a result of hepatitis B vaccination. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, let's say now that we have a similar scenario where hepatitis B surface antigen is negative, but now both anti-hep BC and anti-hep BS are positive. So in this case, you would be mm -hmm. considered immune, but mm -hmm. because your anti-hep BC is also positive, then that indicates that this is uh, a result of natural infection and that you are right now inactive. Makes sense? Correct. Um, because the antigen, the antigen means that you are currently infected. Exactly. So the antigen right. shows that you're infected, but here it's negative, so that's fine. Correct. And then we know that if you are vaccinated, then only your anti-hep BS will sort of flag right. positive. The surface antibody. Actually... Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But if you've been sick with the disease, then both the anti-hep BS and the anti-hep BC will be positive. Right, because you would only have the core if you had been infected, but not if you had been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Okay. What if the hepatitis B surface antigen is positive now, so the antigen is mm -hmm. positive, the anti-hep BC is positive, the anti-hep BS is negative, and the IgM Anti-hep BC is positive. So what are we dealing with here? Yeah, it sounds like you are infected and have not yeah. been vaccinated. 
Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. And so um, the hepatitis B surface antigen that's positive indicates an infection. And now you're wondering, well, is this acute or is this chronic? And because um, the uh, anti-hep BC, uh, the, uh, the IgM for anti-hep BC are positive, we know these are the first one to spike. It means you're in an acute infection. Another scenario would be that your hepatitis B surface antigen is positive. Your anti-hep BC is also positive, but now your IgM anti-hep BC is negative. That means chronic infection because now that the anti-hep BC are the anti-hep BC are positive, it means that this is a natural infection. But because the IgM anti-hep BC, which is usually present only in the beginning as a first spike, is negative, that means that you've passed the chronic, passed the acute infection phase, and you are now in the chronic infection stage. Um, finally, there's one scenario that we probably shouldn't go over where hepatitis B surface um, antigen is negative. That's confusing. It's very confusing. Anti-hep BC is positive. Anti-hep BS is negative, and the IgM anti-hep BC is uh, not applicable there. Fine. So it's a questionable resolved infection versus maybe just susceptible or chronic or resolving. So it's really confusing. I don't think this is a, a something that we will see. Uh, no, no. Okay, that was helpful. Now, what are some of the clinical uh, presentations? So maternal infection is often self-limited with less than 1% having severe liver failure, um, but it increases the risk of uh, prematurity and delivering a low birth weight infant. Uh, the development of chronic infection correlates directly with age. So 70 to 90% of, of untreated neonates will become chronic hepatitis B surface antigen carriers if the mother's hepatitis B surface antigen and her hepatitis B E antigen are positive. The risk is 5 to 20% for infants born to hepatitis B surface antigen positive and hepatitis B antigen negative mothers. Finally, the risk is 25 to 50% of children age one to five years and five to 10% of children over five years of age and adults will develop chronic hepatitis B infection. The spectrum of symptoms is wide. It includes malaise, jaundice, hepatitis, rash, arthritis, thrombocytopenia. Untreated neonates who develop chronic hepatitis B infection will develop hepatocellular cars will develop hepatocellular carcinoma or cirrhosis. So what is the management of infants with hepatitis? And I think we can conclude today's uh, episode with that. Um, so the, the big question is, what is the infant's birth weight? So what is the maternal hepatitis B status? So let's say the mother is negative hepatitis B surface antigen. If the infant's birth weight is above 2 kilos, the hepatitis B vaccination is recommended soon after birth. The baby will require two additional doses of hepatitis B vaccine to complete the series. This is, I guess, your normal scenario. Now, what if the mother is negative, but the baby is low birth weight, let's say 1,600 grams? Well, you will delay the first dose of hepatitis B vaccine until we're closer to 2,000 grams, um, 30 days of age, or at hospital discharge, whichever comes first. The baby will need to complete hepatitis B vaccine series if the first dose is given before the baby reaches 2,000 grams, they will not just need the extra two, they will need to get three additional vaccines. What if the mother has an unknown status? Well, then you test the mother for hepatitis B uh, as soon as possible. You administer the vaccine to the neonate within 12 hours of age, and you have about seven days 
to get the results of the mother's serology. And if positive or unknown by that time, then you need to administer hepatitis immunoglobulin, HBIG. The baby will require two additional doses of the vaccine to complete the series. What if the baby is low birth weight, meaning less than 2,000 gram? Then same thing. You will test the mother as soon as possible. You will administer the vaccine to the neonate within 12 hours. And then you have 12 hours now to try to get the results of the mother and make a decision for this infant. If it's positive or unknown by 12 hours, you give the immunoglobulin. And the baby will need not just two, but three additional vaccines. What if the mother is positive and that's documented? Then the baby, a baby that is more than 2,000 grams, needs to get uh, the vaccine within 12 hours of age. Uh, we administer the immunoglobulin concurrently at uh, a different IM site within 12 hours. And then you will measure the anti-hepatitis B S and anti-hepatitis B surface antigen after vaccine series is complete at about 9 to 18 months to identify chronic carriers and possible need for repeat vaccination. Breastfeeding does not increase the risk of transmission, so you can continue with breastfeeding. If a baby is mother is positive for hepatitis B surface antigen and now the baby is less than two kilos, you would administer the vaccine within 12 hours of age. You will need three additional vaccines to complete the series. You will also administer immunoglobulin within 12 hours, and then you will measure anti-hepatitis B S and hepatitis B surface antigen after the, vac the vaccine series is complete to identify, again, the chronic carrier states and possible need for repeat vaccination. Again, breastfeeding is not contraindicated. Um, the medication for hepatitis B infection include lamivudine, uh, which basically is used if the age is more than three months. We have interferon if the age is over is a year old or more. Um, yet there are high rates of resistance after prolonged use. Uh, there are some other medications that are being trialed, but we don't really need to go into that right now. Okay, buddy. Another tough one. Mm-hmm. But they love to ask about HSV and, and Hep B. So yeah, highly recommend. They, one other thing, study tip I wanted to say about these little graphs. Um, the graphs are not off limits. They love graphs to look at like antibodies, uh, things like that over time. Um, and so I like to just copy that on regular like computer paper. I just like trace them. And then I try to fill in the fill in the you know, whatever the, like yeah. this, we talked about hepatitis antigens here. Um, so I like to see if I can uh, remember which is which. So I would definitely review that. But sometimes once you've conceptualized the picture, like you don't need to all the words because you remembered it from the picture. So okie dokie. All right. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.